This season, You Are What You Read is brought to you by Book of the Month. My mother was a member of Book of the Month. I'm a member. My daughter is a member. And it is my favorite subscription service to give to fellow readers. When you join Book of the Month, there's a sense of community, a book club, one might say, with avid readers and thinkers, somebody just like you. Our reading list can get very long, and it's hard to keep up with all the books being published, but Book of the Month makes reading easy and affordable, and it's delivered right to your doorstep. You are getting the best of the best in literature each month for an unbeatable price. Book of the Month has a fantastic editorial team who read hundreds of books and serve up only the best to their readers. I was fortunate that The Good Left Undone was one of their 2022 picks, along with a roster of other amazing titles. They make selections across genres, so if you're looking for a romance, a thriller, historical fiction, a biography, an autobiography, you name it, Book of the Month has a book waiting just for you. Thanks to our wonderful friends over at Book of the Month, and because of them, we get to bring you a discount. Head over to bookofthemonth.com to choose your first book for just $9.99 with code ADRI, A-D-R-I. Thank you, Book of the Month, and thank you for listening, and always thank you for reading. Welcome, Sarah Jessica Parker, actor, producer, publisher, designer, businesswoman, and at home, a loving wife, mother, sister, daughter, and friend. This is a conversation about the books that built Sarah Jessica's soul and inspired her to publish layered, complex novels about the family at SJP Lit. Diverse, lush, and complex stories that pack an emotional wallop. Let's go back to Ohio, where her story begins. I love your life story because you were in Ohio, <laughs> which I'd say it's like where Fred Capper threw up. It's like <laughs> you're just riding along in your car. There's a hill and there's some houses and then yeah. there's a farm and then there's... I mean, Ohio is uh, the picture postcard of the United States, but then you you got my dream, but you got it as a kid. You moved to New York City. Yeah. To me, the smell of exhaust is Coco oh, Chanel number six. 100%. I love that. And hearing the horns and the taxis and looking out a window and seeing 7th Avenue South, nothing but yellow cabs. But they're like the books you loved. They're layered. It, to look out on a city, I bet when you sketched, you drew... A city. Brownstones. A city with, with brownstones with little windows and there was a lamp in the window. A hundred percent. Do you remember Carla Cuskin and Mark Simmet, the Philharmonic Gets Dressed? Oh, my God. This is the one I get out when, you know, uh, I get weary. I haven't seen that book in four. Isn't it an amazing ever. one? Oh I my mean, God! It makes me feel. I totally it made the forgot. Philharmonic accessible. Exactly, and and we used to. You, I don't know if your mom did this with you, but we would we would. Um, my mother made sure that we got to watch the Young People's concerts. You know the Leonard oh, sure, Bernstein. Sure, sure. I think they were broadcast on PBS, and um, anything she could do to get us near symphony music or Philharmonic music and help us understand it and not think of it as a, this kind of scary, unknowable mix of instruments that was not popular music. Down in cult country, we had yep. a thing called community concerts, which was the touring arm. And I've been able to talk to Peter Duchin about this, which is one of the great joys. Oh, I know you, you must know him. I do. He played for our wedding. How is he? 
he's doing very well. Oh, he had good. a little COVID thing and he was in a coma for like six weeks. And everybody's praying and he came out of it and he's doing fine and he's probably oh, out great. by you there. You got to go visit him. Anyway, yeah, absolutely. He, he's loaded with stories. And oh, he must be. You know, would talk about these small towns he went to. And that was our joy, you know, Ferranti and Teicher giving a concert. Incredible. Or a dancer coming through. or uh, It was unbelievable. But in New York, as a child, can you take us through, what was your local branch library? And then where did you go? Where did your mom schlep these eight kids? So when we first moved to New York, um, we were some of the first, very first families um, that were going to live on Roosevelt Island. We moved to New York January 1st of 1977, but this that was a city-planned housing development, Roosevelt Island, and it wasn't ready. They were well behind in construction. So we put everything we could fit in our Volkswagen bus. My mother was pregnant with um, the second-to-last baby, Allegra. She couldn't travel. My stepfather, Paul, put us in a van, a Volkswagen bus with literally a cast iron frying pan behind my head and packed, 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 brought us to New York, looked in the New York Times. First, we moved into the Holiday Inn in Yonkers. My dad looked in the Times in the real estate section. He found a house to rent in Dobbs Ferry that we could afford. So immediately our local library was the Dobbs Ferry, that whole area. They have li- they have a great public Beautiful. library there. So then when we finally moved to Roosevelt Island, we did have a library on Roosevelt Island. They had two public schools. I think they went from uh, elementary into middle. So we had a library there, which was fantastic. And then my parents moved to Englewood, New Jersey, great public library. And then Teaneck, where I think my mom basically lives at the Teaneck Public Library. There are incredible libraries in the city. There's one in Midtown East that is just spectacular. You know, there's one in a subway station. Um, I've, I've used all of them because you can, you can always pop in. I mean, I've been caught in the rain and just been like, where's a library, run to a library, sit there, read a book, take care of work, you know, answer some emails. New York city is, it's just great. Every time in, our in local, village, yeah. you know, our Jefferson. I love it. Yeah, I've, done, is, I've done talks there. I love it. And he's great. The head librarian there is incredible. When you're walking around, you always have a book under your arm. Why? Well, it's pretty simple. Um, books and time reading were probably the two most important things in my mother's life growing up. I think they books were her companions. They were her escape. They transported her to worlds that she probably thought she'd never visit, see, learn, know, smell, feel. And so from the time we were born, there was a rule in our house that you never left the house without something to read. And that meant even when you were not yet able to read. And I've told this story a million times, but it was true. So we would go to the symphony and she'd say, bring a book. And of course, symphonies for very small children are not terrifically interesting after a while, but there we had our book. So we would just hear the music and be looking at a book. We could say we couldn't read. She would say, make up a story, make up your story. What is the story? What are those pictures telling you? What do you imagine? And I think that's the greatest thing about books is they give you a portrait of a life, a place, a village, people, a religion, a table set with food, and you and your imagination build it and make it dimensional. And I think that's what's so alluring and seductive about books is that you can make it your own experience. And I think it's why books 
cultivate curiosity, compassion, empathy, kindness, you know, interest in other people. So we always left the house with a book. And that, like much of what my mother taught us, forced upon us, it eventually became our own choice. So it got to the point where my mother wasn't forcing us to walk out of the house with a book, but rather that's what we were doing and wanted to do. And so I never leave the house without something to read. Do you remember the first book that was given to you, that was gifted to you, that was your own? Yes. It was a book uh, called Rain Makes Applesauce. And I probably have a copy of it here. It's a children's book and it's filled with silly couplets and some of the most extraordinary illustrations I've ever seen. And it was nonsensical and beautiful and otherworldly. And it's a very slim illustrated children's book and it's called Rain Makes Applesauce. Oh, look, they got the Caldecott, baby. I know, they got the Caldecott, yeah. And this also, I think it's why you became an actor. It's entering a world, it's layered, it's the flats. That man must have designed sets, we'll investigate. But the layer, the color, the texture, the, um, the, the attention to detail, tiny. I mean, it's sequenced on again, tiny little yeah. things. Yeah. So to your little childhood imagination, you wanted to be in a world like that. Oh, 100%. As did, I think, my mother. I think my mother loved beauty in all its forms. And meaning not a conventional beauty, although she was drawn to conventional beauty in a lot of way in terms of like clothing and what was presentable and not presentable. But she was drawn to things that were kind of unfamiliar, but beautiful, like that she wanted to know and understand and take a part. And uh, Ray makes applesauce is, as you said, it's layered in its detail, but you want in, it's not pushing the reader away. It's not scary. The other thing, like a Marie Sendek, um, Mickey in the Night Kitchen, such an incredible book and otherworldly, like it's a crazy thought what he does in that story. And there's incredible details, you know, the batter falling off Mickey as he's falling, you know, all these great things, but he doesn't push the reader away. And I think my mom loved that. Your mother was giving you a gift there. The night kitchen at its heart is about a hungry child. Yeah. She was saying, okay, we don't have everything. Maybe you don't have the latest this and that. Maybe we can't, but here's what Always. we can do. What a price is coming. And I want to say this about your mother too. I never heard you curse. And I'm terrible. I cuss. I cuss like my uncles, the Italian immigrants. Oh, it's terrible. But you never cuss. And I think to myself, and my mother tried. My mother didn't cuss. My dad did. But my mother didn't. And your mother and my mother are similar in that the proper way to do things and the proper way to present yourself, you know, and I'm sure that there was just a little bit of, oh, my kids are in the vaudeville world now. What are we going to do? But she <laughs> built you with books. The great artists, I don't care what field they're in, read. Yeah. And that's the thing that worries me most about telephones and our children and what the time they're losing when they're on a phone and that they're all drawing from the same points of reference, generally speaking, given age groups and the way we kind of direct traffic of age groups. The idea that we didn't have anything else but our own imaginations, um, I think was better for us. It was better for the way we can imagine, the way we might be able to write, to, to communicate a character, emotions. 
even in the way we problem solve or even in the way we conduct conversations with other people. I think it just has been better. And it's probably endless studies proving that reading is better than throwing your head inside a telephone. So my job as a parent is to like try to figure out how to create relationships with both because the telephone is unavoidable. There's a writer out there named Colleen Hoover. Yeah. And young women are reading her in the multi-multi-million. She's outselling the biggest writers in history, including William Shakespeare. And doesn't she produce like countless books a year? Isn't she incredibly prolific? Oh, yeah. But what has been unleashed with this is a return to books. They're flying off the shelves and young women are spending their pennies on them. I think this is the most fantastic thing in the world. Um, They've been in our house. The Colleen Hoover books are in our house. They came in the house through the nanny. And she actually shared with me a really incredible story about Colleen Hoover. Because we talk about books all the time in the house. And I've got one daughter who's a voracious reader and one daughter who is really, really discerning, hard to connect. Once she connects, she's in, but then she's dubious about finding another one. The nanny was telling us a story that she wasn't a reader. She just stopped reading and someone gave her a Colleen Hoover book and she cannot stop reading. And I don't see how anyone can be judgmental about a choice of book, a genre, a writer. I think having your head in a book is great. And it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You know, uh, if you've got a kid that's into sports, there's a lot of ways you can steer them. The librarian is your your guy. Yep. She will find the book for that kid. I yep. mean, look, I never was on a horse in my life. Well, my public school uh, librarian gave me Astonis of Chincoteague and Black oh, Beauty yeah, and National yeah. Velvet. I have them all. I- I've never been on a horse, but I love horses yeah. just because of those books. Yeah. So the point is, you don't have to be the thing you're reading. In fact, it's better if you are something else for what you're reading. Exactly. Right? Now, what did you read your kids? I'm very interested oh my in this. God. Like, just give me a couple of the favorites because I read, I, so I read all the things that I grew up with, you know, Corduroy, all those books. Um, and all the Clement Hurd stuff is so special and she's extraordinary. My first book of sushi was a favorite. Uh, I stink. Do you know that book about the truck? I know I stink. Uh, um, the, the book about the little girl who gets a pair of boots. She's an, an Asian girl and the raindrops make a sound on her umbrella. We read Dr. Seuss books. That was a great way for the girls to learn how to read. Um, we love the Dr. Seuss book about the party, the, the dog party that happens on the top of the tree. The Dr. Seuss book about um, Ted and Fred going skiing in the beds, yes. you know, all that stuff. Did you do the, the New York canon? I know you know this guy. Too Many Mittens, Florence and oh, Louis Levitkin. Oh, God, yes. Oh, God, yes. Well, you know, we've been talking children's books, and I and I, I have to tell you, you know who you remind me of in, in literature? It's Pippi Longstocking. She was a little powerhouse. She was tiny, but to me, she was six feet tall. And 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 remember, she could hold a horse over her head. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but if you think about it, and this is going to lead in really to Zando Books and your new endeavor, we've been talking about what books you gravitate towards. And, and, and the thing about Pippi is Pippi is before anybody ever thought about the way families are structured in non-traditional ways, she's basically an orphan. She tells everybody her father's a sea captain. He's out at sea. We really never meet the mom. There's a tree in the front yard where, that makes chocolate. 
which as you get older and you're reading those books, you go, somebody put that chocolate there, right? <laughs> but she goes to school. She deals with anybody that bullies another kid. She's this petite powerhouse with those <laughs> braids, yeah. doesn't care, has a style that no one else has, no, which reason. I would say is can be your... I know you are her in oh, a certain way in that you go into terrain unknown and figure it out and become a leader in it as you have in books, which I think, you know, I will try now I'm going to aim to have Pippi as a destination point because I that's such a very generous and very sweet comparison. And, and so I will work. I will work toward that now. I'm reading the Zandel publications now, and I'm I'm blown away by them. Um, Alina Grabowski's Women and Children First, Kim Coleman Foote's Coleman Hill. And of course, I've, I've actually had the honor of a conversation with Alicia Chang in the Quitter's Paradise, which I found to be a resplendent yeah. literary feast yeah. and a, a, a woman's journey in a very specific way through navigating a relationship with her mother, her family, and the expectations that are placed upon her. Can you speak to, because there's a lot of immigrants, refugees, descendants of slaves, folks that have been placed in America somehow Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with the promise of something. Can you speak to that? Why why does that intrigue you? Well, I think I've always been drawn as much as existed that I could get my hands on to things far away, unfamiliar, foreign, often places, books about people and places that I likely would not have opportunity to visit, know, a place that I probably wouldn't have a chance to smell, taste, a religion, a faith that's unfamiliar, because I think I always loved what I didn't know or understand. I thought my life was different. And and it wasn't that sophisticated thinking when I was little, but I remember, I might've told you this already, so forgive me, but I remember even when I came to New York City as a very young girl, we would take the train and I would always stare at people, especially people that didn't look like, say, people from Clifton in Cincinnati, where I had grown up to that point. And my dad would say to me, you've got to stop staring. You're making a spectacle of yourself. And I understood why and staring can make people feel uncomfortable, but I think I carried on staring. And so in many ways that was through books. And so when I first started publishing at Hogarth, my first experiencing publishing literary fiction, I wanted more of what I wanted to read. And this was many years ago at this point where literary fiction and having access to global voices wasn't quite as easy as it's become, thankfully. Now we have you know, not only just on bestseller lists, but we have available to us writers from Korea, Africa, voices from Ireland, voices obviously from the UK, New Zealand, indigenous voices, voices of immigrants. And so when I first started publishing, the first book I published was A Place for Us by Fatima Farin Mirza. And that book, though it was about an American family, I always say it was about an American family in all its pluralism, because there was a first generation born and the story of children's desire to honor parents, to take care of faith or religion, to follow tradition and ritual, but to also be carving out their own life, their own identity, to me is really interesting. And it often is filled with nobility and grace 
patience, frustration. And I keep being drawn to those stories because I think they so much reflect so many of those around us who we might not get to know. Now I understand how you choose your books to publish. You don't just lead with your taste, which is extremely important. You have very elegant literary tastes, I think. Um, that, well, it's the well-told story. But I want to get to this point. Everything in every industry is a trend. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time when I read, I can't tell you how many books that were set in Nigeria, which I was thrilled about because Nigerian authors became a thing. You tend to be, you don't pick one area of the world or one particular people. We get a sampling really of, of every culture so far. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've, you've spread it across Asia. <laughs> We've got the Middle East now, definitely Europe, and then the American story back from our founders with Coleman Hill. I mean, with the, with the whole idea of how a family fits into this democracy we form. And the story of the, the, the migration, the northern migration. You know, what happened yes. to African-American families in the South when there was the possibility for different life, career opportunities, a different relationship to money, to security, to ownership, perhaps a different place to be a woman. Now that proved to be not perfect when people arrived, situations were not That's right. ideal. That's right. And and I think Kim Coleman Foote's debut, um, Coleman Hill that you mentioned, is an extraordinary portrait of one family, but it will speak, as a lot of the books that I publish, about a lot of families and a lot of people's experiences. This is an American story in a lot of ways. That's what we want. We want every point on the star here. When all those rays to sort of come together so that we get the full menu of what went on. Because I'm afraid, because half the books written, historical, uh, nonfiction books that are written, half of it's missing because women aren't in them. So to take her family story, which she well, she also uses elements of fiction. and mm-hmm. I, She calls it a biomythology. Oh, it's a biomythology, so it's got it's got a little bit of magical realism in there. It's got it's got everything. It's got faith, family, the idea of what could have been. It's all in this sumptuous book. And you decided to publish it. She granted us the great gift of saying yes to us publishing it. So I yeah, feel but you're more in there so. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like <laughs> back in the, this is like back in the day when you had to tap dance better than the next girl. Okay, because this is a highly competitive field. Yes. (laughs) But you always navigated gracefully. So it doesn't even feel like competition. But to get your flag on these moons, SJ, it's a really big deal. Yeah. And and I didn't honestly think that we would have a shot with this book only because I think and has proven thus far, we're just less than a month away from publishing it's already been nominated uh, for the Center for Fiction first, first book, um, which is incredible. Really great reviews coming in from you know industry trade publications and just people's response to the book. I didn't. I knew when I read this manuscript that this was going to speak loudly. Her skill, her gift as a storyteller, but her her profound preternatural ability to be so many people to talk about time and place and to make each person singular. And I think one of the greatest 
achievements in this book. It's taking a family this large, how many generations we're discussing, and the reader is never confused who they are or where they are. And that is because she has such specificity for each person and such respect for this family and such curiosity about this particular kind of trauma and this kind of generational handing off of trauma, of disease, of poverty, of optimism, of strength, of perseverance, that you're never lost in this book, which is a triumph. Oh, I kept everybody. The, the character Jeb really got me. Oh, I, I, you know, it, it, Jeb. I, I, Jeb, are you at a, the end he, yet? Is that why you said that? No, no, I'm oh. not at the end. I'm oh, like, wait. I'm like three quarters. I just got, sh- I just got, sh- I just got shivers talking yeah, about he, that. that. That character, I don't know why. I, I, my, I felt like that. Like I loved him. He breaks I loved my him heart immediately, right? Uh, and I can't wait to talk to her, and we're going to oh, about it. But, but yeah, yeah, oh yeah. The, look, look. One of the great things that emerged from this cuckoo, horrible, tragic pandemic is we started talking to each other about the things that matter to us. And books became something that, uh, I mean, it's it's a common ground that, that we all share. Even if we, and the reason we, we really say the books have built your soul is because we want to get granular with what you respond to. What feeds your soul? What do you respond to? And I, I, I've gotten a pretty, I'm starting to get a pretty clear picture here. What you're doing or your approach to how you put books in readers' hands is very personal. You get behind each title and you use every avenue that you have to communicate with the public to push the books into their hands. Um, you're a regular at the ALA. They, they, they love when you do that. You support books when you when you're when you're running around with a book, people are zooming in on it, right? <laughs> um, instead of instead of your shoes, we want them also to look at your shoes. <laughs> now, books, you have a fever about it, and we know what you come from, and you, you were so eloquent about explaining that. Where's it going? Well, I hope that you know Zando has a very different uh, business model, and I hope that. They have the success that I think they deserve. They have a lot of publishers in-house. I'm one of a few. Among them is Gillian Flynn, who's just published a brand new book that's getting a ton of attention and I'm sure is going to be a massive bestseller just because her taste kind of writer is and what she's interested in. Yeah, she's, in. she's terrific. She's, she's terrific. amazing. So I hope for, for me that I can still pursue the kind of books I like and that those books have enough success first and most importantly for the writer because i want these voices to become part of when we talk when readers talk about their favorite authors and those favorite books i i want to integrate these authors names in their minds and out their mouths because i think that these are the kind of writers who have a long life ahead of them so i want to be able to be able to publish more of them and i want the books to have enough success so that i have the opportunity and the currency to keep doing that and that Therefore, more writers will trust me. And at the end of the day, you really want those writers to get paid and you want them to feel taken care of and shepherded through the journey of a book being brought to a reader. So my goal is to keep publishing and showing those writers how meaningful they are in my life and what I will do to support their stories being disseminated as widely as I can. 
I have a feeling that when you get a spare minute, which is not often, but when you get it, you're reading. You're always reading. Oh, always. Okay. I, at one point, uh, I, you're not a you're not a you're not a woman who curls up by the TV set. I just don't not, see it. Not it's every now and then, late, late, late at night. But I thought I was you know thinking so much about talking to you, and then I was thinking about the fact that I get to talk to you again, and I thought. You know, I'm never someone who can pull up a picture. You know, some people can say, oh my gosh, remember when we were in Italy? And then they they can find a picture really quickly. I can't ever find a picture on my phone. But what I thought is, oh, I wish I could show Adri as we chat about books that my photos are probably 60% children and our family pets and 40% books. Every book that I want to read, every book that I find through some subversive backdoor podcast or not even podcast, but like weird blogs that are coming out of Korea, that are coming out of New Zealand, that are coming out of the First Nation community in Canada. All I do is collect. It's like, and I said to, I said to the other day to, I think it was Matthew, I said, it's like, honestly, it's an addiction. I am so afraid that I'm not going to get my hands on a book. I am so afraid that I'm not going to have enough to read. I am so afraid that I'm going to forget a title that I know is obscure and I'll never find my way back to it. And I don't know why I feel that way about books. I I, I really, I don't know, but I thank God for them. <laughs> when you find one and it's an obsession, you, your head explodes to figure out ways that you could get it. Why isn't everybody talking about this? I know. I why, know. Why isn't everybody talking about this? I just, uh, I, I've just peeled through, I call them palate cleansers because I read so much for, for this and yeah. I read so much for the Facebook live show that I try to go down different avenues in between them yeah. because those are the things when I'm reading and I think you do the same thing when you talk about the phone. Now, on my phone, too, are brides, because in the Italian tradition, it's good luck to see a bride on our wedding day, and we'll be on the West Side Highway, and they go over there to get their pictures. May not be Tim. Tap the car! He goes, it's a bride, and I'll get her picture. I don't know who these people are. You're gonna get a, I'm going to die, and they'll look at my phone and go, she had a problem or something, right? This season, You Are What You Read is brought to you by Book of the Month. My mother was a member of Book of the Month, I'm a member, my daughter is a member, and it is my favorite subscription service to gift to fellow readers. When you join Book of the Month, there's a sense of community, a book club, one might say, with avid readers and thinkers, somebody just like you. Our reading list can get very long, and it's hard to keep up with all the books being published, but Book of the Month makes reading easy and affordable, and it's delivered right to your doorstep. You are getting the best of the best in literature each month for an unbeatable price. Book of the Month has a fantastic editorial team who read hundreds of books and serve up only the best to their readers. I was fortunate that The Good Left Undone was one of their 2022 picks, along with a roster of other amazing titles. They make selections across genres, so if you're looking for a romance, a thriller, historical fiction, a biography, an autobiography, you name it, Book of the Month has a book waiting just for you. Thanks to our wonderful friends over at Book of the Month. And because of them, we get to bring you a discount. Head over to bookofthemonth.com to choose your first book for just $9.99 with code ADRI, A-D-R-I. Thank you, Book of the Month. 
And thank you for listening. And always thank you for reading. I want you to draw a line for me because okay. I'm slow on the uptake, as you know. No, and what? I, I, let me tell you, slow on the uptake. I had a conversation with the, the great Alice Hoffman the other day. And you then I did? talked to Daniel. So, but yes, yes, which is it's fantastic. And wow. uh, which, which when, when she comes to town again, we'll get together. But oh my God. Because she, she's a she's a joy uh, on every level, okay? Uh, I've wow. gotten to know her and I and I love her. And um, and I said to her the other day, I said, Alice, do you ever think, I, I, I take walks, you know, I was like, want to see you, but I, I, I never see you because you're, 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 you and I are like, phew, phew, phew. <laughs> um, but I think I'm going to see you and I'm walking around and I had this thought, what's everybody else thinking? <laughs> what's everybody, because all I'm thinking about is what I'm writing every yeah. day of my life, seven days a week. When you become a publisher, an editor, that's all you're thinking about. Mm. I'm like, what are these people thinking? I said to Alice, she goes, I've never had that thought. Oh, uh, you know what I, now I'm going to have that thought. Mm-hmm. And I said it to Daniel Silva and it kind of blew his head wow. off because wow. we, we're trying to hide it. Mm-hmm. We're trying to hide our passion because we don't want to appear that it's the only thing that matters to us. Yeah. When in fact, now you, you're, I mean, you have many years of publishing authors, you know how they operate. You know, they want to hear about their book. What are we yeah. doing for my book? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So will you draw a line for me? Because I think every artful endeavor, whether it's the dramatization of a story, which is a business that you know, or it's the design of a piece of clothing, I mean, mixed media, you know, boom, Sakai, I think these designers that, you know, uh-huh. the, the seams are on the outside and there's a piece of velvet and on the back it's, you know, it's like something from an army surplus store and then there's a tuxedo, of vel- I mean, you know, all of these things seem to be part of a whole. Can you talk about that? Pull that thread for us from the child actor to the publisher. Hmm. What's on that clothesline for you? Oh, wow. That's so good. A clothesline. That is so uh, helpful. I think if I had been given, like, if I think if someone had laid out choices, as in a way they used to for women, you're going to be a wife, a nurse, a teacher, a secretary. I don't think that publisher would have been among the choices someone would have offered me and nor would I think given what a lousy student I was, what a terrified student I was, what a terrible tester I was that I would ever have assumed a life in publishing where would be an option, never mind for women, but for me in particular. But I guess the laundry, the clothesline is connected, you know, by the shirts and the knickers and the brassieres and everything else in between to elsewhere, elsewhere, elsewhere. That t-shirt is going to take me to that pair of trousers, to that skirt, to that kilt, to that dress, to that sweater. And I think it all has been, where else can I be? And I think when I say that sometimes, and I don't know if you would agree or not, it's not that I'm unhappy in my life at all. I don't want to escape from my life. I just don't want to miss out knowing somebody else's. So if that means on stage playing a part or on film or television playing a part or in somebody else's book, not one I'm publishing or in a book that I get to publish, I don't want to miss out on anything. I used to brush my teeth when I was little. I could never stay in the bathroom. And even when I became Annie on Broadway, 
everybody would make fun of me because I'd brush my teeth before every show, but I'd have to walk around because I was afraid if you shut the door on the bathroom to brush my teeth and keep it a solitary thing, I would miss something that my brothers or sisters were doing or that another cast member were doing. I didn't want to miss anything. And I think that's simply the way I am now. I just don't want to miss anything. Well, the gift of your difficult academic life (laughs) where you felt, well, where you felt a failure (laughs) and where you felt you weren't a test taker, which is the whole system is built on that. It's the worst. You persisted as a reader and you are, in fact, self-educated. And I'm going to posit this to you. The thing in your life that you're the most, maybe you're longing about it or you're sad about it, is the thing that made you who you are because you had to go out and seek it. For those folks that are good test takers and were told, you read this book, then this one, then this one, and they never ventured outside the lines, they're missing the massive joy of putting books in people's hands. And developing a sense of taste in literature that you would not be here without that. Have you yeah. come to that point of understanding about yourself? Absolutely. And and um, that's why you and I, I'm sure, are the same when we talk to our children and other children when we get to have an, when we get to where we're included in conversations about education and the arts we talk about the ways to achieve that def- that are not the conventional orthodox ways to help our all children those who take tests well to not miss out on the creativity and those who don't test well to miss out on being on thinking of themselves as valuable as contributors the two are not mutually exclusive you can be a terrific test taker and still be a creative person who's interested in a color of paint or somebody's life in Senegal. You can be lousy at tests and have a hugely rich life. And I know now that to be true, but growing up and every now and then I'll hear one of my 14 year old daughters fall into this. If I don't do well on the ICs, this door closes, this door closes, this door. And she mostly doesn't believe it. But there is part of her that has to work hard to resist convention that I will keep saying to her, many people don't test well on the IC and have gone on to be engineers, teachers, stay-at-home mothers, uh, actors, poets, philosophers, potters, weavers. Like It is up to us as parents and as citizens to make sure we give all children matter their zip code, the opportunity to consider themselves hugely necessary in our lives. Absolutely. And to not exclude a single child from the creative process. I've seen that down exactly. in Virginia, uh, uh, really up close with the kids. It, if, if their voices are heard, if they can write a story, suddenly they know they're a writer. Suddenly they know they have a story to tell. Maybe they're not going to become a professional writer. That's not the point. But the idea that in our classrooms that they're encouraged, regardless of their ability in maybe math and science. I mean, I know our children are part of like the great STEM and the great Stevie Van Zant from the E Street Band said to me, put the A in there for the arts. Yeah, and exactly. he's right because he's the arts right. give us something. It, it's and for a child that is a and and I know this from experience, from a child that might be might have a hard time forging friendships, but when they're in a play, they find a family there. 
They find people that are going to relate to them on that stage, whether they could talk to them in real life. And then they develop the skills from there. Yeah. They develop them. Absolutely. um, I love your clothesline. And you know, I love you. (laughs) And I love what you're doing. Thank you. uh, I love what you're doing, Adri. I love what you're doing. I'm going to tell you a quick story before I go, because I get to go have a conversation now with Kim Coleman Foote, which I'm very excited about. But I want to tell you a quick story about you and my mom. So you you gave us each, as you always do, a copy of your last book. And my mom, as we discussed, just loves you, understands your talent, your storytelling, wants to be in your pages with you, will follow you around as close as she can. And so somehow I got her copy and she got my, meaning like I reversed them by accident. And, you know, there are a million things going on in my mom's life, but getting her copy back, (laughs) I am not kidding you. It was borderline hostile. I said, mommy, I promise I'll get it back to you. Then she would come and I'd forget to give it to her. Or then I'd say, oh my gosh, I left it upstairs. Oh, I should have brought it down before you left. I'm so, you have my Adri copy. I said, mommy, I do. Anyway, if you can believe it, I just got it to her two weeks. Anyway, just recently, but there was this thing because she wants your book with her name in it, with your signature and your sentiments. My mom loves you so much. She doesn't get to see you or talk to you In the same way that I get to, but I know that we are only two of millions who love you and love your heart and your massive talent and the way you look after writers and you look after your community, but you also look after readers and you bring them in and you shepherd them and you take them to the next depot and you drop them off there. And then the train comes back and you take them further. And I just think, it's incredible. And you've always been the most dazzling person in the room. You've always been the energy since the day I met you. You've always been able to serve 300 people in a parlor, the size of someone's bedroom in Illinois, decorated better, smelling better with more food, talking to everyone, knowing everyone's name and business. There is nobody like you. And I just want to say thank you. I was looking forward to this so much. And this is, of course, you know, just the middle of our, of our, conversations of our of our life conversation yeah. and yeah. and i just want you to know that you you know I'm always here for you and Thank i you. just love i love all that you're doing it's making the world a better place oh, and thanks. that's it and we need you and don't stop likewise and, and pray on this okay i i want to make sure because i think you know your mom and i one time we have a very long thank you for this the beautiful things you said because you chided me last time we were together and said, hey, I'm paying you compliments. You don't say thank you because I am a little child and I don't hear it, but I just took that in okay, and good. that's going to be my source of strength in, okay. the, in the weeks to come. So thank you for that. But I hope you're going to do YA and I hope you're going to do children's books. Oh yeah, we all talk about that and we are. We're, we're, we are, our, our efforts it's are a month, toward and you've that. You've got to get your mother involved in that because your mother- yes. She has a granular sense of children's books in a way that nobody does. I think we talked about Noel Streetfeld and we talked about, um, uh, she loves Frances Hodgson Burnett. Yes. She loves all those books, you know, and, um, and so, and, and by the way, in letting you go, I just want this to be our last thought is think about the books that shaped you. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that 99% of them were written by women and they get no credit. A hundred percent. I love you. Thank you. you. Listen, Zando Books, love you. Uh, you. 
this has been wonderful. Oh, and we'll talk again. We'll as talk soon as you have me. Soon. As soon as you have me. You. I love you. Send love to everybody at home. Love you and love everybody at your house. Bye, honey. Bye, sweetie. Thank you, Sarah Jessica Parker, or should I say, Sarah Jessica Perfection, for a wonderful first episode of You Are What You Read. We'll be here every Tuesday with more great thinkers, artists, and luminaries and their recommendations of books, and also the books they write, the books they publish, and the books they read. Join me over at Instagram at You Are What You Read podcast or a full list of all the books and titles mentioned in every episode. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening, and always thank you for reading.